Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corporate Report. I'm James Corbett of CorporateReport.com, and you are tuned into Propaganda Watch. And if you cast your mind back to episode 382 of The Corporate Report podcast on Your Body, Their Choice, you will remember that I did raise the issue of vaccine hesitancy, a brand new field of exploration that's been pioneered over the past decade, this decade of vaccines, as declared by Bill Gates, seeking to understand and counteract the phenomena of people using critical thinking skills to reason for themselves whether or not they believe that immunization is a net benefit or a net risk on a case-by-case basis or on a blanket basis. At any rate, the idea that you ever, ever have any hesitancy in accepting a medical intervention like immunization that has been recommended by the approved unappointed, unelected, unaccountable health authorities of your given regional location is so anathema to the people who wish to control every aspect of your existence that they have really spent a a decade and however many billions of dollars and however many thousands or millions of man-hours of research into understanding how best to change your mind on this topic. And this is the core tenet of Propaganda Watch that we keep coming back to. It is something that I want people to consciously recognize that enormous amounts of expenditure, both in terms of time and in human resources and otherwise, are spent each and every day trying to convince you of certain things. And that enormous amount of effort would not be undertaken if what you believe was not fundamentally important. Your ideas, your outlook, which ultimately influences your behavior and actions, is exceptionally important. And the would-be controllers of society are well aware of this. This is why they spend so much time trying to analyze you and better persuade you one way or another to think and act along certain lines. Case in point, vaccine hesitancy and how to address it. And as one example of that, we can turn to immunize.ca, the website of Immunize Canada, which is a non-profit group coalition seeking to basically get everyone in the universe uh, immunized, but specifically, obviously, in the Canadian context. And they have a page up on counseling the public where they have a handy-dandy guide to various publications that have been uh, published over the past, really, the past five years um, about how to uh, effectively communicate uh, ideas about immunization or how to address vaccine hesitancy from the Canadian Immunization Guide, CMAJ, US CDC, World Health Organization, etc. So these are a lot of, I mean, you can explore all of these. I'll put the link in the show notes, obviously, so you can explore these documents individually. We're going to be taking a look at one of them in particular. Um, But before we do so, I think it is important to just parenthetically note, what is Immunize Canada? Where does it come from? How does a group like this uh, actually function? Well, if you go to their About page, you can get the spiel about being a nonprofit group that just wants to help public health, etc. But when you get into the member organizations, of course, it's the Heart and Stroke Foundation and Diabetes Canada and these types of things that you'd expect. There are government members of this coalition, including the Public Health Agency of Canada, Canada and Public Health Ontario, as well as First Nations and Inuit Health Indigenous Services. Um, but there are also sponsor members, including <gasps> GlaxoSmithKline, Merck Canada, Sequoia's Pfizer, Sanofi Pasteur. Wow, the vaccine manufacturers collaborating and colluding with government and with various public health agencies in order to address the problem of their unwilling customers uh, being hesitant to accept 
their wonderful benevolent products. This is a marketing campaign that is literally being sponsored by the companies that directly stand to benefit from it with the imprimatur and even the force of government behind them. And yes, well, you're the crazy one for thinking this is a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. It's right there in plain sight. They don't even bother to hide it. What's, what's possibly wrong with having these corporations that literally stand to monetarily benefit from this, sponsoring the organizations that are lo looking to persuade you using psychological insights and research to accept their products? <laughs> in what other field would we accept that? But in this field, it's you're, you're crazy and, and, and you're a wild-eyed anti-vaxxer if you don't 100% trust every one of these products. Ridiculous. All right, well, let's so let's take a look at how they intend to address this. And we're going to look at one specific document that came to my attention recently, the World Health Organization Europe's document on how to respond to vocal vaccine deniers in public. Uh, here is the document itself on the World Health Organization homepage, where it says, This guidance document provides basic broad principles for a spokesperson of any health authority on how to respond to vocal vaccine den deniers. The suggestions are based on psychological and public health research, communication studies, and WHO risk communication guidelines. So I will, of course, put the link in the show notes so you can go and access this document directly for yourself and read it for yourself. Uh, but let's go through it together. This is, again, a best practice guidance document, how to respond to vocal vaccine deniers in public from the World Health Organization. There's uh, an abstract, some acknowledgments, but in the introduction, we get an idea of the scope and scale of this document. This guidance document provides basic principles for pro-vaccine spokespersons on how to behave and respond to vocal vaccine deniers in a public debate. Vocal vaccine deniers are individuals who do not ac accept recommended vaccines, are not open to change of mind, uh, no matter the scientific evidence, and are actively advocating against vaccination. The guidance in this document was developed based on psychological research on persuasion, on research in public health and communication, and on WHO risk communication guidelines. The guidance is primarily intended for spokespersons of health authorities who want to prepare for a public event with a vocal vaccine denier. So this is what this document is aiming at. It is primarily for health authorities or spokespeople of various kinds to use in public debates or public fora where they are presenting evidence as to why everyone should unquestioningly accept every vaccine no matter what. And, uh, and so it does define a couple of the terms here, including vocal vaccine deniers who are individuals who do not accept recommended vaccines, are not open to a change of mind, no matter the scientific evidence, and are actively advocating against vaccination. Um, which... Just to put it on the record, for my own sake, uh, I am not a vocal vaccine denier by that definition. Uh, I, my position is and has always been that as responsible adult human beings, I fully 100% believe in your ability to weigh the possible risks and possible benefits of any given medical intervention for yourself, given the information that is presented to you and to make your own informed decision on those matters, a decision that cannot be abrogated by any would-be authority wearing any hat or badge or stethoscope trying to force you into making a decision on that matter. That's why I would never force someone who wants to be immunized to not, you cannot be immunized. No, I don't believe that. But on the flip side of that, I don't think that anyone who 
does not want to be immunized in any specific case or even in any form whatsoever. I don't, I don't think that any government or any other type of authority has the right to come in and to literally force that vaccine into them. So that's my position. I am not a vocal vaccine denier, but I think this document does tell us interesting things about the way uh, these types of public communications work, these debates and other things, and the types of things that they, the health authorities are thinking as they go into them. Um, that all, One, it helps us to decode the types of statements that are made in these types of public debates, but also secondarily, these are things that are generally uh, applicable. Um, it doesn't have to be for this situation, doesn't have to be for advocates of vaccination. I think these are there, there are some interesting uh, hints, tips, and tricks that we could uh, benefit from ourselves in this document if we strip it from its intended context. Uh, let's scroll down a little bit to table one, two rules that aim to strengthen the audience's resilience against anti-vaccine rhetoric. Rule number one, the general public is your target audience, not the vocal vaccine denier. And rule number two, aim to unmask the techniques that the vocal vaccine denier is using and to correct the content of their messages. So again, as I say, the exact, these ideas and rules can be applied in any context. For example, the general public is your target audience, not the 9-11 denier, or whatever the case may be, not the vaccine advocate. Uh, rule number two, aim to un unmask the techniques that the 9-11 denier, the, uh, the vaccine uh, advocate, is using and to correct the content of their messages. Again, this is widely applicable. And with the ultimate goal, foster resilience among the audience against anti-vaccine statements and stories, strengthen those who are vaccine hesitant and support those who intend to vaccinate in their decision to accept vaccination. So again, that's the broad scope of this document. And they go into, in section 1.1, what situation does this document address? Specifically talking about how this is intended for people in a public communication fora of some sort, a, a debate or something along those lines, where there is an audience as well as the person you are directly addressing. So in this handy dandy illustration, thank you for that, guys, they, they point out this is for public discussion, not for face-to-face -face or private communication. Um, they go on to further elaborate on the term vaccine denier, at which they differentiate from vaccine refusers, who are a group within the vaccine hesitancy continuum who refuse all vaccinations without doubt. However, even convinced refusers may still consider other opinions and be convinced by scientific evidence and well-presented arguments. So note well, if you are able to at least consider other opinions, then you are not a vaccine refuser. Uh, or you are not a vaccine denier, I should say. You are maybe a vaccine refuser, depending on whether you fit these particular uh, category uh, attributes. Uh, the vaccine deniers refers to a subgroup at the extreme end of the hesitancy continuum. People who have a very negative attitude toward vaccination and are not open to a change of mind, no matter the scientific evidence. In fact, they may vaccine deniers may even counter-react to evidence-based arguments. <laughs> So they're projecting a lot, I think, but uh, at any rate, they even provide, again, this very helpful, by which I mean not helpful at all, illustration showing, oh, okay, so here's, here's the differentiation. There's the hardcore of vaccine deniers who have very low or zero probability of ever changing their mind. There's the vaccine refusers who uh, are unlikely to change their mind, but are open to doing so. And then there are the hesitant individuals who are 
more highly probable of, uh, of being open to changing their mind at any rate. Uh, as section 1.3, they, they go into the term vocal vaccine denier to to underline the point that a vocal vaccine denier is not only a vaccine denier, but someone who is taking that into the public sphere and advo- ad- advocating and arguing that no one should take vaccines and under any circumstances. And uh, that's basically the, the way that they're defining that in this document. But they go into, in Table 2, actions undertaken to spread messages of vaccine denialism. And I think, again, the projection that's going on here is remarkable. One, skewing the science, vocal vaccine deniers ignore and reject scientific evidence that counters their arguments, as opposed to the vaccine, the pro-vaccine advocates who 100% embrace any and all scientific scientific uh, evidence or studies that in any way undermine or counter, counteract their point, right? No, of course not, right? Uh, two, shifting hypothesis, vocal vaccine deniers change the topic that they're addressing when they fear to lose an argument, which is actually one of the f- core ideas that is being taught in this and other documents about how, how best to change and tailor your message to reach your audience and how to change the, the, even the point of what it is you're trying to address based on who you're talking to. Uh, three, censorship. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is ridiculous. Vocal vaccine deniers shut down critics and avoid open discussion. Do I really need to go through the millions of examples that we could point to of uh, vaccine advocates advocating for and in some cases actually implementing direct censorship of vaccine hesitant individuals and their opinions it is remarkable that in this document they would presume to say that the censorship is on the vaccine hesitancy side of the argument that oh yes you know all of those extremely powerful vaccine hesitant individuals who own Twitter and Facebook and Google and what have you, who are actively censoring any discussion of uh, vaccine pro-vaccine arguments, right? Can you name any single example of a vaccine, pro-vaccine uh, website or a- any sort of communication that has been censored? That's ridiculous. And in the example of someone like RFK Jr., who has been for years asking for, pleading for various vaccine proponents to come and debate him on this issue, and they all turn him down because they don't want to give a voice to anyone who has any question whatsoever about the safety and efficacy 100% of every vaccine ever manufactured. It is ridiculous. So... Uh, I think that's very much projection on that point. And then number four, attacking the opposition. Vocal vaccine deniers use personal insults and even legal actions to silence representatives of the scientific consensus. Again, uh, attacking the opposition. 100% every single time you see anything about anti-vaxxers or anything approaching vaccine hesitancy, it is 100% ad hominem, and it is completely coming from the pro-vaccine adherent side of the debate. So again, the, the levels of uh, projection that are going on in this table alone are off the charts. So, uh, moving on to uh, table three down here, they have motivations to reject science about vaccination, and they go through some of the reasons. Why would anyone ever have any questions about the safety or efficacy of vaccines? Why? 
Uh, people can be motivated to reject science and vaccination in order to express their identity as a non-conformist or a reactant individual. That's right. I just, I decided that I was going to take this side of the debate because it seemed like the underdog side. So that, you know, I just decided to wrap my entire personality around being this non-conformist. So I'm not going to take your vaccines, man. Uh, conspiratorial ideation, of course. People could be motivated to reject science about vaccination to express their belief that those in power are hiding the truth. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing to see here when, when organizations like Immunize Canada are literally sponsored by GlaxoSmithKline, Merck, Sequoia's, Pfizer, and Sanofi Pasteur. That's totally 100% above board and awesome. And if you question it, you're one of these crazy cons uh, conspiracies, conspiracy theorists which blends in with financial interests. People can be motivated to reject science about vaccination because they profit from spreading an anti-vaccine attitude. Again, profit from spreading an anti-vaccine attitude. Let's let's just put the uh, the scales out there and see which side of the debate is better funded. The bajillions of dollars provided by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, all of these mammoth multi-billion dollar well-funded endowments and foundations with all these grant money sloshing around the World Health Organization, all of these international health bodies, let alone the governments and all of the various uh, sponsor organizations, let alone, of course, the vaccine manufacturers themselves who are in the back door funding all of these organizations and groups versus the handful of grassroots people who are actually trying to get information out that opposes this agenda. Hmm, I wonder where more of the money is coming from. It's ridiculous. Again, <coughs> on its face, ridiculous. Uh, fear of needles and disgust is one of the reasons why people might be hesitant. Expression of moral values, uh, to express their moral value of purity, which is a weird way of putting it. I'm assuming they might be lumping religious objections in with that, but... That's a very strange way of putting it. And then social identity needs. So, so basically people are just trying to conform with their, their, their peers by being vaccine hesitant. Again, some very interesting ideas about why people reject the science about vaccination. Again, just framing the entire debate in a way that presumes the, the conclusion that they want. So then they go on to talk about the target audience and uh, again, talking about what a true discussion entails, acknowledging different points of view and testing the strengths and weaknesses of different arguments. A media or public debate is not a true scientific discussion. In addition, vocal vaccine deniers will rarely adhere to these basic premises. You know, those shifty vocal vaccine deniers. So, uh, again, reiterating rule one, the general public is your target audience in this type of public communication, not the individual you are addressing, which, again, is broadly applicable to any sort of public communication. So how do you understand your target audience? Uh, well, basically, they go into the point that everyone, as human beings, have biases. We are not... Uh, robots that simply process logical arguments uh, 100%. So we all have biases, negative, negativity bias, uh, narrative bias, backfire effect, etc. And they go through these different biases and what they mean. For example, the negativity bias reveals that individuals trust scientific studies more when they report a health risk that could potentially harm people than studies that indicate no risk for people, etc. They go through these types of biases and then Talk about debunking. Research on debunking misconceptions does not only help to avoid pitfall, it also helps prepare uh, messages to mitigate the influence of myths. 
If a spokesperson wants to correct a misconception, it will not be enough to label the belief as false. The audience is seeking explanations and tends to believe corrections that provide an alternative to the myth. Again, broadly applicable, good advice for anyone involved in any sort of public discussion on any issue. Okay, turning to the speaker, and they start to try to get into the uh, the minds of who is being spoken to and spoken uh, with. Uh, it's it's really again interesting the way they try to pump up the person who is going to be taking on this debate, facing a discussion with a vocal vaccine denier. You, as the spokesperson, should always remember that the most substantial arguments on are on your side. Having a vast body of evidence agreed by the majority of scientists to back up your position makes you well prepared from a scientific perspective. The scientific consensus that you are representing can serve as an initial gateway through which to influence your audience's key beliefs and increase this support for public policy in support of immunization. Which, again, science by consensus, science by majority opinion of the best-funded doctors and organizations claiming to represent doctors. You see where this is going. Scientific research on communication shows that the quality of the evidence you provide not only influences the uh, audience's attitudes towards a health treatment, but also increases your credibility. So basically trying to give a little pep talk to pump people up. Don't worry, you can do it. You've got science on your side. Uh, talk about being a good spokesperson and they go into the various types of verbal and nonverbal techniques that you can employ in these types of situations using metaphors, using stories and anecdotes, expression of moral conviction, contrasts, reflection of the group's sentiment, rhetorical questions, setting of high goals, three-part list, conveying confidence, and non-verbally you can use facial expressions and gestures as well as varying the volume of your voice and the pace of your speech. So, being a good speaker can be learned, and they're, again, very broadly applicable ideas for speaking or communicating in a public context of any sort. And then also being a good listener, which, again, is an interesting point. In communication studies, the importance of listening in any communication process is unquestioned. To design effective messages, you need to listen to the denier. Even though your true audience is the general public watching or listening, it would be a mistake to ignore your discussion partner. And it shows that uh, discussion is not a platform or for a monologue. The public will judge you by the attention, motivation, and participation that you as a spokesperson demonstrate during the discussion. That is no doubt true. I always do uh, take the points more seriously of people who seem to be actually addressing what the other person is saying rather than going from some list, pre-prepared list of talking points and not deviating from that uh, in any way. So... Again, these are just general points that one can use in discussion. Do's and don'ts of communication. Prepare key messages. Communicate what has been achieved. Keep your messages simple. Tell the truth. Hmm. Tell the truth. That's a pretty good point. Maybe that Maybe that should be the, the number one. Maybe that should be the, the entire document. Tell the truth. <laughs> that would be a good counter document to this type of document. Uh, repeat your key messages. Avoid humor, which I thought was an interesting point. Humor has long been discussed as an effective strategy to increase the pers- persuasiveness of a message. However, this benefit is absence in the context of health, which could be explained by the fact that humor is easily misinterpreted or even perceived as offensive when used in an inappropriate context. So... That's interesting. Do not repeat the anti-vaccine arguments because you don't want to, even uh, just by the fact that repeating them actually reinforces them in the minds of the listener, even if you are negating them, which is another important point, which, again, reflects more broadly on 
public communications of various sorts. But for example, if the independent alternative media, all they ever do is talk about what the the mainstream establishment media is telling them to talk about on any given subject at any given time, then essentially they're just reinforcing the narrative, even if they're trying to negate that narrative. So that's something to keep in mind. And then do not question the, the denier's motivation, which I think is a, again, this is a, a good point that should be employed more broadly. I'm not sure I've ever seen any sort of debate on the vaccine subject, let alone many other subjects that does not, that where the speakers actually adhere to this rule, but it is true to bring in the motivation. I think you're saying this because is a low blow and uh, should decrease your credibility in the mind of the, the listener. Use inclusive terms because psychological research shows that high similarity between speaker and audience can increase the audience's compliance with the message. Underline the scientific consensus again. Everyone's thinking it, so you should too. Uh, emphasize social benefits of vaccines. The social benefit of vaccines. Interesting. So then they finally get into the argument and they, they give some tips for identifying the five characteristics of science denialism. Conspiracies that scientific consensus is the result of a complex and secretive conspiracy. No, it's the result of a complex and out-in-the-open conspiracy, I would argue. But anyway, <laughs> well, you know, take that for what it's worth. Fake experts using fake experts as authorities combined with denigration of established experts. You see, they keep going back to the scientific consensus, trust the science, follow the science, listen to the science. If scientific studies are on your side. These people aren't listening to science. But if you ever have any scientific counter-argument backed up by science and research and data, that's because you are relying on fake experts. And guess who gets to decide who are the fake experts? That's right. It's you, the, the pro-vaccine advocate. You get to decide. And we'll get into how they decide that a little bit later. But again, that is Again, the part of a uh, the the reflection of a complex and out in the open conspiracy. Uh, three selectivity, referring to isolated papers that challenge scientific consensus. Again, uh, again, the idea is there is this block of ninety nine uh, experts or ninety nine papers or ninety nine journals that all think this thing, and then there's this one that discredits it or says it says something different. Again, as if science works on that framework. Well, yeah, but millions of people believe whatever, that uh, there are four elements that everything is made of, fire, water, earth, and air, and that's it. And, oh, look, there's this one crazy person over here talking about some other way of looking at it. They, they must be crazy. We will never change our mind on that opinion. Uh, number four, impossible expectations, expecting 100% certain results or health uh, treatments with no possible side effects. Well, interesting. No, of course, no one can ever really reasonably expect that. But you can make your own decision whether or not you think what what you think that risk is and whether you think that risk is acceptable. Can you not? Are you allowed to make that decision for yourself? And then five, misrepresentation and false logic, jumping to conclusions, using false analogies, etc. Because we all know that is never employed by vaccine advocates. Uh, again, step two, disentangle the core points and address each separately. For example, the threat of disease, trust, alternatives, effectiveness, and safety of vaccines. Uh, respond with evidence-based message. So uh, it's a three-step process. Identify the technique that the vaccine denier is using conspiracy fake experts selectivity impossible expectations misrepresenting false logic uh and then step two identify the topic 
the topic that this is concerning, trust, threat of disease, effectiveness, safety, alternatives, and then respond with your key message. And so they should give you examples. For example, uh, step one, identify the technique. So if someone is complain complaining that the government is systematically hiding the real data, then you identify the topic, which is trust, and you come back to the government receives kickback, kickback from the pharmaceutical industry. It is very profitable business for them. And then step three, you respond by saying the conspiratorial notion of this statement completely ignores the mass of scientific evidence produced by independent scientists all over the world and the benefits of vaccination in protecting entire populations from potentially life-threatening diseases. It also overestimates the power and discredits the motives of health authorities everywhere. So I, I don't really see how that fundamentally addresses the, the real and identifiable monetary incentive that uh, is at play here or the fact that it is being employed by these organizations. But at any rate, that's this is this is their three-step process. So I'll let you go through and read that for yourself. Uh, and then 4.1, response to vocal vaccine denier. So they give you this handy-dandy chart so you can prepare for every single possible type of argument that you could encounter and what you should say in that circumstance. Because we all know that's that's going to come across as totally not scripted and stilted when you actually do that in a public forum, right? <laughs> and then 4.2, beyond vocal vaccine deniers, response to other discussants. Not everyone who spreads false information about vaccination is in public is a vocal vaccine denier. Vocal vaccine deniers are motivated to reject science for a variety of different reasons. A discussant can make a false claim simply because the discussant is misinformed. That is, the discussant repeats claims of vocal vaccine deniers without being one. So the discussant could be a concerned parent who is biased in his or her perception, for example, due to the narratives he or she has read online, etc. So they go through some different examples. And then the structure of the information stays the same. Whether the false information is coming from a vocal vaccine denier or is repeated by a misinformed individual who has no motivation to reject science, the topic addressed by the message and the technique, techniques used to make them sound appealing the most uh, are most likely covered by the algorithm outlined in figure four. Again, argument by algorithm. I just, I don't think that's going to work in reality. Um, table 12, using topic and technique rebuttal to counter impossible expectation in scenarios with varying discussants. So this is talking about how different people will frame the argument that vaccines are not 100% safe, which is demonstrably true, of course. So here's how you respond to people who are making that argument in public. So for example, the vocal vaccine denier says vaccines should be 100% safe and the rational, because he's a crazy wild-eyed weirdo, and then the rational voice of authority says expecting 100% safety is impossible. No medical product or intervention from aspirin to heart surgery can ever be guaranteed 100% safe. What we do know for sure is that the risks associated with vaccine-preventable diseases by far outweigh those of vaccines. In the worst of cases, infectious but preventable diseases such as measles can kill. And they give examples of these type of wooden stilted statements that you can make in various situations, arguing the straw man that there are people who are saying that it is 100% safety or nothing, as opposed to the more fundamental argument that is my ability to make my own decision of what my risk tolerance is when it comes to my body. My body, my choice. I get to choose whether I want to play the Russian roulette with this chamber. Now, however many chambers there are in this gun, you know, there might be a hundred chambers, there might be a million chambers, and there's only one bullet. So you're, don't worry, guys, you're probably going to be fine. But it's my ability as a sovereign human being to come to my own determination of my 
risk tolerance on any given medical intervention. Uh, and I want to hear the moral and rational argument against that. No, it is not up to you. And of course, they will do that by appealing to the the broader social uh, uh, milieu of this, which of course is everything that the coronavirus freakout is aimed at right now propagandistically, which is convincing you that if you do anything against what the health authorities are saying, you are a grandma killer, a, a literal psychopath, as they are now arguing, that only psychopaths would refuse to wear a mask or all of these types of things, because you are unconcerned about the way this infectious agent will spread to other people. So you have to follow religiously whatever the health authorities are saying. That is essentially the way that they are trying to abrogate your basic sovereignty over your own body. Your body is not your own. As again, I did demonstrate in Your Body, Their Choice, episode 382 of the Corporate Report podcast. Give it a listen or, or, or review if you haven't yet done so. So then uh, there are unfavorable interview con conditions that they go over. Um, so for example, they talk about uh, ways that even trained spokespersons may find it difficult to stay calm and deliver key messages in various contexts. So they have to for example, demand fairness from the moderator or make the audience aware of the bias that's going on, etc. And then they talk about depolarization and embracing the opponent, which is interesting. Talking about what you, well, we're all concerned about the health and safety of people and blah, blah, blah. Trying to connect on those types of issues, which again is more rhetorical con, con uh, uh, trick, essentially, that is being employed rather than genuine sympathy. But at any rate, it's a an admirable idea. Um, but I find this figure, figure eight, example of depolarization via embracing, particularly funny. So again, the crazy wild-eyed vaccine denier, you support the wallet of the pharma industry, I support the safety of my child, to which the level-headed voice of rationality responds, in science, we call this argument false dichotomy or black and white thinking. Black and white thinking because Mr. Zed assumes there is a good and a bad side in this discussion. In fact, we are all after the same goal, to keep our children safe and healthy. You faced a terrible tragedy in your life, and I do understand your fears, but there are a lot of people still alive because of vaccination. The overwhelming majority of pediatricians strongly, period. <laughs> So, again, they couldn't even be bothered to finish that statement. You know, you get it. You get it. The overwhelming majority of pediatricians strongly blah, blah, blah. And blah, 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 because, uh, again, in, in direct contradiction to what they were saying earlier about having, employing various rhetorical strategies to, to maintain the interest and attention of your listeners, this is the biggest block of blah, blah, blah that you could fill in the blanks. You don't even have to listen. I mean, you've heard exactly this type of spiel a million times. So, uh, whereas this statement, whatever you think of it, this statement is direct to the point and, and will connect with a large number of people in the audience. This block of blah, blah, blah will connect to precisely no one and change precisely no one's mind or opinion, which I find interesting in an entire document about how to effectively communicate with people. In some ways, maybe it's a good thing that they're teaching the spokespeople of the, the state and the health authorities how to speak like robots, <laughs> trying to convince the other bots, I suppose, that support them in the crowd. Uh, then they have a chapter on religious beliefs, which again is interesting um, because, uh, I mean, they, they talk about Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the various... Uh, objections that these these religious beliefs have. Um, but the way that they do it is, again, very dismissive, treating entire 
entire belief systems that people base their entire life on as just some sort of, hey, yeah, but, you know, okay, just tell them this and they'll go away. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So just go and read through it. Um, I mean, just for example, in the Christianity, re- vaccines with remote fetal implications are morally acceptable with a duty to protect children unless alternative products are available is the counter argument. Well, go and read it for yourself. Uh, they, they reference uh, in the document, they reference this uh, papal decree, the moral reflections on vaccines prepared from cells derived from aborted human human fetuses, which gives a rather in-depth study of of this issue and does not, it's not an easy thing to just say, oh, okay, so yeah, whatever, Catholics say it's okay to use these vaccines. Well, actually, no, it goes into great degree of detail and it talks about the moral the moral duty to continue to fight and employ every lawful means in order to make life difficult for the pharmaceutical industries, which act unscrupulously and unethically. And they talk about the grave responsibility to use alternative vaccines and make a conscientious objection with regard to those which have moral problems. But then, you know, again, they they reference this, but they don't address this in any degree of detail. Similarly with the other objections from other religious uh, beliefs. They just say, ah, you know, Oh, Jainists can be appeased because, you know, they have the, 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 the regretful acceptance of cooking food, boiling water, using antibiotics and vaccines in order to sustain human life. That'll be good enough. That'll make them shut up. It, again, it just seems very dismissive. Um, but I, I suppose this is not the key point of this entire document. Uh, you can continue reading through that. Uh, chapter 8, How to Behave in a Passionate Debate. And it gives some ideas for that, and then participating or not, basically whether you should enter into a debate in the public or not, and uh, you shouldn't. For example, if you're not media trained, you do not have sufficient time to prepare, the content, focus, or format is unclear or repeatedly changed, the format does not seem serious, the audience of the discussion is not relevant or large enough to justify your participation, the journalist is unwilling to listen to you, uh, you suspect the discussion may be too biased, or your safety during the discussion cannot be guaranteed. So, Again, absolutely, it's those crazy vaccine deniers who in any way try to, they always try to shut down, censor, and avoid uh, discussion. But here are the reasons that you shouldn't participate in discussion. Fair enough. I agree that there are certain times in which public participation in certain public uh, fora is not really advisable or not really uh, helpful. But at any rate, that does cut both ways which is, I'm sure, allowance they do not make. And then they give you a handy-dandy flowchart about whether to decide, whether to agree to a debate or an interview or not. <laughs> so, again, again, treating the people who are reading this document as robots. Just go through the flowchart and you'll find out whether or not you should attend the debate. Ridiculous. Uh, chapter 10, fake experts and predatory publishers. This is the other part that I think, again, is the open conspiracy. No, there's nothing hidden about it. It's quite open. But they, they give you... The examples of what scientific articles should be treated uh, acceptably. Oh, okay, that's scientific research versus what should be taken with caution. And they talk about articles that are not indexed in scientific database, articles published in a journal with no impact factor, articles published in an open access journal. (gasps) Open access. Uh, Journal metrics cited come from sites that are not transparent, um, including Google Scholar, interestingly. But again, this is creating the consensus around a given topic because... Of course, there is an ecosystem that supports certain lines of thinking, an entire academic slash publishing slash governmental ecosystem of this is approved science. This is what is being funded, is being sponsored, is being published. That 
constitutes science, and everything else is fake experts. So, again, it's a big club, and you ain't in it, as usual, and we get to determine the limits of that club in conjunction with our bajillionaire backers and the pharmaceutical industry and the other industrial uh, monetary interests behind this and the governments. They can all decide what constitutes science. So they get to define it in a way that this is the consensus. Because look, this is all that's ever published on the subject, is things agreeing with it. So if you're against it, that means you're not part of the consensus. You're, a f you're applying to, appealing to fake experts. And then they give what now in references. So, uh, and then there's some an annex on the Hurrier model of listening instruction. So again, it's an interesting document. There are, again, as I say, there are some broadly applicable things about just engaging in public communication at all. But it is interesting to see the way, the, the type of time and attention and energy and resources that are being pumped into preparing people to persuade you to change your mind because what you believe is important. They cannot, at this point, control billions of people and force them at gunpoint to take a vaccine, and they don't want to do it that way. They want to persuade people because a persuaded public is the most effectively controlled public. And uh, another example of how this is broadly applicable that I want to point out, this document in itself is referenced in a lot of different places. For example, the uh, government of Washington has up this addressing fluoride hesitancy using immunization approaches. So again, we have this broad-based medical intervention that everyone knows is 100% safe and effective and it's great and it's sunshine and rainbows, but for some reason there are crazy people who are against it. Well, how can we address that hesitancy? Well, exactly like you address vaccine hesitancy. So you'll notice that uh, in their articles and research to address hesitancy, they actually, again, directly link to this document from the WHO, How to Respond to Vocal Vaccine Deniers in Public. So, again, this is broadly applicable, and it is being used against you, whether you know it or not. When you see public communications by health authorities, it is very likely they have addressed, they have, they have read this document or been... Uh, briefed on it or similar documents from the entire ecosystem of the international health, uh, public health uh, industry, because that is what it is essentially, uh, that has produced these types of documents over the past decade, the past several years in particular. So I thought that this was an interesting exploration, wanted to share it with you. Uh, that is going to do it for this edition of Propaganda Watch. Thank you. Uh, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.